In Matthew chapter 21, we see an angry Jesus. He is smashing temple tables. He's turning them over. There's coins clattering on the stone pavement. There's doves flying out of their cages, ripped open by his anger. It's a hot mess. And we see an angry Jesus. I love angry Jesus. And I want you to love angry Jesus too, for the right reasons. Here's two of them that we're going to cover today. I want you to love angry Jesus because you and I must better understand anger in our lives. How it affects us and how it affects other people. Studies show that anger is the most powerful emotion. The most powerful. More than anxiety. More than fear. More than depression. More than guilt. Anger is the most powerful. It's called the dynamite of the soul for a reason. Because when something goes boom, things disintegrate. Your anger destroys the people around you, your relationship with them, your ability to make wise decisions, and your own heart. Number two, why this is important for us to love angry Jesus, a part of understanding anger is to, is to know this, that inherently, essentially, at its very basic level, anger is good. Anger was created by God, designed by Him, to be a security measure of sorts, to protect good things that are being threatened. Never get between a mama bear and her cubs. We all know that, right? Why? Because God designed anger, and mama bear is going to get angry at you if you're between her and her cubs. So, anger at its essence is good. God gets angry, and that's good. And the reason he gets angry like a mama bear is because there are enemies that come between you and him. And he seeks to strike his anger at those enemies. Sometimes those enemies are in your own heart, and so it's going to impact you too. But at its essence, God loves you so much that when something threatens you, he's going to get angry. We'll expand on both those thoughts in the sermon today as we look at Jesus in the temple on this angry Monday and others in the scene who are angry too. I want to start by this. I want, I want you to search your heart and I want to ask you a question. What is it that makes you angry? Oh, people! People make me angry. Idiot drivers! Oh, they make me angry. They go slow in the fast lane. They don't use their turn signal. They park in my spot. Oh, People make me angry. Bossy perfectionists and know-it-alls. Oh, make me angry. My spouse, he makes those noises when I'm trying to sleep, and she steals the covers and she won't admit it. 
kids, when you tell them something a million times and they still don't listen. Circumstances make us angry. You only have 15 minutes for lunch. You haven't really managed your time all that day, and you're trying to do way too much more than you really should be. And so you're, you're taking this 15-minute lunch. It's a five-minute drive to Chick-fil-A and a five-minute drive back, and you get there, and the drive through line at 12 noon, imagine this, is wrapped around the building. How about that? Go! And pollen? Oh, I just want to punch pollen. My allergies, my nose is running, my eyes are itching. Oh, I have a headache, I'm fatigued. Circumstances make me angry. No. No. People do not make you angry. No matter what the event or the circumstance, it does not make you angry. Here's proof. There are people who get stuck in bad traffic. Or there are people who have really bad allergies worse than yours or mine. And they shrug it off and get on with their day. See, so people and events don't necessarily make everyone angry. Maybe they make you angry, and then that's the question. Why do they make you angry and not that other person? A very perceptive little boy was sitting in his car seat in the van with his mommy in the middle of running errands and they were stuck behind a train and it was a long line and a long train and it was frustrating and they were late and he noticed his mommy smiling and humming calmly to the radio. So he asked his mommy, Mommy, why do the idiot drivers only come out when daddy drives? That little boy is on to something. Right? So when, when you are angry, it's you making a choice. You making a response to triggers around you. Those triggers don't make you angry. Your response to them makes you angry. See? So there's outside things, the events, the circumstances. There's inside things inside of you, beliefs, priorities, values, past experiences, who you are as a person. That's the inside things. And your inside things filter those outside things. And that means that when you become angry, you are responsible for your anger. Not other people. Not other circumstances. Anger is not what happens to you. Anger is what you tell yourself about what happens to you. The idiots only come out when daddy drives. Makes sense. Anger is also very deceptive. It... Psychologists say this. Anger, more than any other emotion, acts the most like an addiction. And one of the similarities between anger and addiction is that it fools you into thinking that you don't have a problem with it. So it's my job today to convince you that you do. Here's one proof. 
Why, why do we, including myself here, why do we become disproportionately unglued, totally losing it, about a small little injustice that happens to us personally? But larger, horrible injustices in our community, in our country, in our world, abortion, child abuse, human trafficking, a village starving to death in Africa, people in China going to hell. I'm totally cool with neglecting that. You see the imbalance there? Something that should warrant only a little anger in us gets a lot of it! And something that should warrant a lot of it gets only a little. There you go. How can it be that I lose my cool over my accountant missing $14 on my taxes or some pollen on my clean car. And there's people in China going to hell. I'll tell you how. It's disordered anger. Disproportionate. It's not lined up properly. And disordered anger comes from disordered love. We love our choices and our freedoms. We love sex and entertainment and sports and financial security and profit. We love our children. We love ourselves. More than aborted babies, more than kids being abused, more than villages without food in Africa, more than people in China going to hell. Admit it. And so I want to follow that up with a question, another question, a challenging question. What in your heart angers you the most? In your heart, when you're honest, what angers you the most? And this could be a this could be level one type, just frustration and irritation. Ah, kind of an ongoing, steady, bugs you. This could also be an injustice that you have suffered in the past and you haven't worked out yet. Someone at some time wronged you in some way. And, and you're just not over it. And it shows by the way that you treat others who are like that person. Maybe it was a a person in a class system or a person of a certain race or gender. What in your heart angers you the most? And then ask yourself this. What is it that I'm defending? What is it that I feel in my life is being threatened by me getting angry. And there, right there, you will find what you love the most.
It's a very honest, real exercise. The Bible does not speak well of our disordered anger. Matthew 5, verse 22, and Colossians 3, verses 6 through 8, uh, speak very directly as the Bible speaks about anger. Anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment, the Bible says. And then Colossians 3, it lists a, a number of different sins and says to stay away from them. Rid yourselves of, and it has this laundry list, and included in the list is anger and rage. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. He God, God knows. He, he knows the answers to the questions I just asked you. He knows them. He knows that you put in front of him, in a disordered love, something that you treasure, that is so valuable to you, that you lose your marbles when it's threatened. And it's, and it's not God, it's something else. And that makes him angry. It's really an idol, it's what it is. We live in our lives with these functional idols that we turn to, that we need. And when they're threatened, look out. We get irritable, we get frustrated, we get angry, we lose our cool. And God gets angry because you're giving your attention and your awe. You're giving what is most important in your life to something else. And that something else has empty promises. They sound good, they sound convincing. You think you need it, but you don't need it more than God. And that's what makes God mad. Jesus is angry in the temple. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. See, these people, it was Passover. They were getting ready. It wasn't Passover. They were getting ready for Passover starting on Thursday. And this is Sunday. And so about three weeks ahead of time, like setting up for a carnival, the temple merchants would show up. All of these tourists would be coming to Jerusalem from other places, around from Galilee and from other places. And they would come to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And part of the festival was paying the temple tax in shekels. But the currency in some of these other places was not shekels. And so they need to exchange their currency to pay the temple tax. Of course, there is a little bit of a markup on this any entrepreneur would do. And the poor had a little loophole in, in the Mosaic law and, and said this, that they didn't have to offer a lamb. They could offer a dove. Ah. So we had temple merchants selling doves to the poor. Of course, the markup during Passover, whew. This is what made Jesus angry, these, these temple merchants. Some people say that the best way to handle uncontrollable anger is just to express it. No! Oh, just throw your temper tantrum and be done with it! Just vent it! Just get it out! Just kick the furniture! There's a, I read a letter from a lady to a, one of those new, newspaper counselors, like Dear Abby and those... And this letter said, my husband has had a problem for years kicking the furniture and we were told to let him do it. And so we did. 
But that didn't fix anything. As a matter of fact, that made it worse because then he started kicking the dog and then he started kicking the kids and now he's kicking me. Two or three generations ago, expressing anger was the thing to do, venting it, we're finding that that doesn't work. All right, then the opposite, then suppress it, then hold it in. Don't let your anger out. Just keep it inside. Whatever you have to do, just keep it in. Yeah, that's like shaking a can of Coke. Explosion, ready to happen. The Bible has a better way. The Bible speaks very clearly and honestly about anger. And it says it can be controlled and expressed and managed. And if we want to see it done correctly, we need to look at God and how God handles anger and how he expresses it. And so we want to appreciate the anger of God, and that's going to help us understand our own and how to handle it. Let me, let me share a verse with you from the book of Exodus, where it, we call this uh, God's sermon on his own name. It's Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Very interesting passage about God's anger. I'm going to read this to you, or you can look it up and follow. And and there's a sandwich here. There's an anger sandwich. The pieces of bread on the outside are God telling us how loving and good and faithful he is. And in the middle of it is anger! Doesn't make sense. You're reading and it's nice and then it's bad and then it's nice again. But this is how our God filters his anger. And listen specifically to how he describes his anger. It's not like a shaken can of Coke. And it's not like kicking the furniture. These are God's words. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Slow to anger. Mommies and daddies, quick triggers. That's hard, isn't it? It's just so easy to to lose it at the kids. Shaken baby syndrome? Hear that? At an innocent little baby who won't stop crying and a a mommy loses it. I was close once as a dad of a baby getting that irritated at, at at my oldest son. I was close and boy did that scare me. Slow. God is slow to anger. He has anger because he's a loving God. You can't be a loving God without anger. He's a loving God. He's something is threatened that he loves, namely you. But instead of exploding like a can of Coke, instead of kicking the furniture, God's anger is thought out. It's it's purposeful. It has a goal in mind. It's not dropping a bomb and everything in the vicinity disintegrates, but it's a surgical strike at the actual problem in you. 
You are not the actual problem, but it's in you. And that's God's slow to anger that we need to understand works for us and we need to work in that way. So, God manages his anger. We see that God gets angry at the things that he should and doesn't get angry at the things that he shouldn't. So, the dove sellers and the temple merchants, the exchangers, here was the problem that Jesus was upset at them about. They were not angry at the things that they should have been angry at. So, not only is it a sin to be angry at what I shouldn't, it's a sin to not be angry at what I should. (laughs) Get that. The temple merchants were perfectly happy turning away from God for a better profit, exploiting the poor, letting their jobs get in the way of Jesus right in the Lord's own house. Oh, they were happy this on this Monday. They were making money. The temple crowds were there. It was a good day. Get out! Jesus cries. Because they weren't angry at their greed. They weren't angry at, at themselves for, for letting their worship become this. And so Jesus had to get angry for them. <laughs> so now it's like we can't win. I, I, I'm, I can't be angry at, in some ways, and I'm supposed to be angry in other ways. Let's explore this a little bit with a real-life story. Perhaps one of the most difficult experiences in a parent's life is when, not the terrible twos, those are nothing compared to the teenage years. All right, it's when they get a mind of their own that's, you know, somewhat informed in the world. And so it's that day that your teen comes to you. And this is their response. After you've come to them again and again and again about something that makes total sense, you know, to the rest of the population of the entire world, and that, that is just common sense and that, that everyone sees the importance of, uh, like when you say to your kids, you know, if your friend jumped in a lake, would you jump in a lake too? You know, but no, they, they know better. And so they, after you come to them with something, they say, why should I? You don't really love me. You know what? You've never done a thing for me. You've sacrificed and you've spent and you've hauled around and you've given gifts and you've stayed up at night and you've changed their dirty diapers and they say, you've never done anything for me. You don't love me. I hate you. How do you respond to that? In one of three ways. You can withdraw. You can just back away and ignore it and hope it gets better. It's not going to. You can fully engage with guns blazing. 
right? You can get in a war of words and you can throw your grenades and there's going to be explosions in the kitchen and in the living room and in the garage and slam doors and it's going to affect not just you and that teen who is your child but everyone in the vicinity or perhaps the whole zip code. And you can get in a war of words and you'll probably win because you've been around for 30 years longer than they have and you know how this works. That's option two. Option one lets them stay in their youthful idiocy. Option two makes idiots of you both. There's a third option. The third option is slow to anger, managed anger, a surgical strike that is careful, that is thought out, that is gentle yet firm, and that strikes surgically at the real problem, not blowing up the person. You can come close and then back away a little bit and come close again and then back away and come close again, but you are coming close. You are insisting on the truth. And only the truth sets us free. What we need to come to grips with when we think about our anger and its appropriate use is this, my friends. At some point, you and I are, in reality and functionally, angry at God. God, you don't love me like you say you do. God, I don't, you've put this person in my life who is a thorn in my flesh, and I, I, res, I resent it. I want something better. I need something different. God, you, well, I want you to give me this. You haven't answered. God, God, you took this person from me. And in our heart of hearts, we are the teenager. God, you have never done anything for me. I hate you. And God has three choices. He can withdraw leave us in our sinful idiocy. He can fully engage with guns blazing, and when you get into battle with God and his guns blazing, you don't survive, and neither do the people around you. Our option three, a surgical strike. A surgical strike, by the way, both from the point of a parent and from the point of God, involves absorbing some of that rage, involves taking some hits without striking back. God absorbs your anger and your rage, and he is patient with you, not unholstering his guns, but waiting in mercy and waiting in mercy and waiting in mercy. He insists on the truth. He comes close to you. And nowhere do we see God engaging in that third option better than at the cross. At the cross, God tells you the truth. At the cross, God comes close, closer than ever to you.
And He's left you this intimacy and this closeness and the sacrament of Holy Communion, His own body and blood, to tell you, I, am, I forgive you. And at the cross, Jesus absorbed the rage. At the cross, Jesus suffered for your anger that He didn't deserve. And He suffered the anger of God for you that you did deserve. And so we can read in Romans. Uh, I picked this verse out. It's a great verse uh, from Romans that tells us more about the cross. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? You're saved from God's anger because of the cross. It's done. Two examples I want to end with, and then a story, which is really a third example. Here we go. Verses 14 and 15. This is, we're at the temple now. It's Angry Monday. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he, and he healed them. Jesus is healing blind and lame people. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple court, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. That word means incensed, outraged. Can of Coke shaken up, exploded, kicking furniture. You have anger all around. Jesus is angry. Here, even before the chief priests get angry, he's angry. You know what he's angry at? He's angry at the results of sin. He's angry at blindness. Because God didn't create people to be blind. He's angry at sickness. God didn't create this world with sickness. Kind of like he was, when he went to the grave of Lazarus, remember it said he, he got he angry there. He was angry at death. God didn't create death either. We've brought this on ourselves. And so because of sin's presence in this world, those things are around. doesn't mean if you have allergies, you're more sinful than another person. It just means that those things exist because sin exists. And Jesus is, is angry at them, and he's healing people from them. And those people praise him, and the children praise him, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law get angry at him. So he gets a little angry at them. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth praise? <laughs> he's, he's saying, you church leaders, you just don't get it. You're, you're angry at what you shouldn't be angry at, and you should be angry at what you should be angry at. You're angry at the wrong thing. And these children get it. The children are happy with me, Jesus, their Messiah, the promised one. And you're angry at that. Chief priests and teachers of the law, you should be angry at yourselves. Then you'll start to understand how you can be really, truly happy. The second example is, is uh, you can go read this more this week. Uh, it's... It's a great example of God coaching us through anger, particularly Cain. So in Genesis chapter 4, Cain gets angry at his brother Abel. They both give God offerings, and it says that God was pleased with Abel's offering, but not with Cain's, because he gave it from a grumpy, greedy heart. 
Somehow Cain figured out that God was happy with Abel's offering, and Cain was very angry, the Bible says. So here's what God said to Cain. Why are you so angry? Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Anger, uncontrolled, unmanaged, irresponsible anger is a sin. And God tells Cain, listen, it's crouching at your door. It's like a predator. And predators, like snakes, like to be camouflaged. They don't like to be seen. And so your anger is not going to be easily detectable by you. So be careful. Do what you can to detect it, to call it out, to make it obvious so that you can deal with it, Cain. And it wants to master you. See why it's so important for us to understand anger and its impact? It can and will master you if you're not careful. So God says, master it. Control your anger. Be responsible with it. See how God is slow to anger. And God says, even to Cain, you can do it. So here's, here's a final thought to remember to help. Don't be angry because you want to. Only be angry when you must. One of... Uh, an influencer in my life, a person that I look to and think that that person really made a difference in my life and I part of who I am today is because of that person is a teacher and a coach that I had in high school and uh, he taught religion, um, he taught me some math, he didn't do very well there but religion he did pretty good and, uh, and he was our coach in numerous sports, and, and I looked up to him. He was a very demanding teacher and coach. He's one of the reasons that I became a pastor. And I, I played basketball for him, and the team that I played on, our average height of our five starters, the average height was six foot five inches. I helped balance that out at five foot eleven, and then the rest of them were like six seven. And so basically, teams um, pounced on me because I I was handling the ball a lot because they were big, tall guys and weren't really good ball handlers. But I think I was actually worse. Um, I wasn't a very good ball handler either, and teams took advantage of that. I set the record at my school for turnovers, and that's I don't want to talk about that much anymore. Uh, but uh, I don't remember my coach ever losing his cool during, during a game or a contest. He was, he was managed, and I see too many coaches having temper tantrums and behaving like children, and it drives me crazy. Um, he was a fine Christian man and took that onto the court, onto the field, and uh, he, he was very measured. I never remember him with all the turnovers that I made and probably lost games for our team. He never lost his cool on me, lost his temper on me. He was just, he was patient. He was surgical strike. He was firm. He was, let's work on this. Except for one time. It was, a, it was a big game. It was on our home court. It was the final quarter of this game. I was given it 
I was doing the best that I could. I was in the backcourt. I had the ball. They were pressing me. Like, I don't know, 18 people from the other team. Well, two, but it felt like 18. Were like on top of me and I picked up the ball and I couldn't dribble and I, I was just, I was standing there and they're around me and their arms are flailing around me and they're trying to grab the ball and BAM! One of them hits me with his elbow right in my face and blood spurts everywhere and my, my blood and there's tweet! The ref blows his whistle I'm like, oh good! And the ref called a foul on me that apparently my elbow, my, or my face, fouled his elbow. My coach if you ever got close to losing it, lost it, not at me, but at the officials for that call. How do you think I felt to be observing my coach directing his ire, his anger, not at me for all those turnovers, but at the officials who he believed were threatening me and our team in our season? Wow. Thanks, coach. You're, you're in it for the team. And, and you're, it's controlled and it's managed, and uh, that was a great example for me, and I look back at that uh, as a way that anger works. And he was very deliberate. It was a surgical strike. It wasn't a bomb. And I want, I want us to see that too. Anger is not always a sin. There are things you should be angry at, and maybe you're not. And there are things where it's a sin that you shouldn't be angry at, and you are. Remember your Savior who absorbed all anger for you. Anger is not your master. Jesus is. So play hard for him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we've approached anger today, and it can be a, a scary approach, but we know that it's controlled and, and mastered by you because you're our Savior. Thank you for instructing us today, for being a model and example for us, and for helping us to understand that uh, you've taken care of your Father's anger, and he's not angry with us for our sins anymore. Help us to follow you and to love you, to love you more than anything, and to make important in our lives what you want to be important. Thank you for these words. Help us to take them with us this Holy Week and make a difference. Amen.